Hey, it's Talknosis. You're watching it or listening to it. Thanks for doing that. We're the web's premier talk show about Gnosticism, Gnosis, mysticism, Christian mysticism, Christian contemplation, meditation, the Desert Fathers, Avrigrius, and whatever <laughs> else we feel like talking about. My name's Deacon Jonathan Stewart. I'm joined by my co-host, Bishop Laney Peterson. Hello, Bishop. Hello. How are you doing, Deacon? I'm doing fairly well. Yeah, as as good as one can down here in the Kenoma, I would say. So, uh... fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. I'm excited about our guest today, though. Oh, me too. And I'm gonna be learning uh, some, I... some new stuff. Oh, so yeah, no, I'm pumped as well because uh, this is a, a topic that's near and dear to our heart. Uh, we have a, a scholar, Jacob, given on. Hello, Jacob. He's going to be talking to us about Christian contemplation. I should mention that as well. Hi, Jacob. Hi. Hello, everyone. Great to great to make your acquaintance virtually. And we are yeah. thrilled to have you. Absolutely. We, we cannot wait to dive into this topic with Jacob. But talking about the Kodoma, we do have to wait. <laughs> we do have bills to pay. <laughs> we do have bills to pay, literally. We actually, in a very literal and direct sense, cannot do the show without your financial support. Uh, we do have to hire uh, a digital studio, 99 Perspectives, the best in the world. And uh, we have no extra money because uh, everybody on staff is some kind of artist or writer <laughs> or copywriter. And... Uh, Believe it or not, that does not haul in the green. So if you are able to, you can donate for as little as $1 per piece of media per month through patreon.com slash Gnostic. You can also put a cap on that in case we do a thousand pieces of media that month. And you can also do one-time donations at paypal.com slash Gnostic. And I know that these are hard times and they're probably going to be hard times forever. Uh, so if you cannot donate financially, we completely understand. But you can also help us out in other ways. You can tell people about the show. You know, ear to mouth, mouth to ear is one of the best ways to spread the word. But you can also put it on your social media you can rate and review us you can subscribe to our youtube you could take your favorite episodes and send them to a friend who might be interested okay the commercial is over here comes the good stuff jacob what is christian contemplation uh well <clears throat> first of all thank you for having me on your show uh this is this is a nice way to spend a wednesday evening um so christian contemplation uh it could be a loose term that means a bunch of different things. Um, uh, a lot of times with contemplation, people think about contemplative practice, which can be anything from, um, you know, sitting quietly, reading thoughtfully, things like that. Um, when I use the term, uh, I think about a very particular kind of um, awareness of the presence of God. And Contemplation isn't necessarily a practice, but it is the fruit of different practices, if you want to think about it that way. Okay, extremely cool. Now, what's what's the point of it? <laughs> like, wh why don't I just get down on my knees and, and verbally pray or pray one of the many beautiful prayers that are in Scripture or outside of Scripture? Or if, if that's not doing it for me, why, why wouldn't I just go learn sitting meditation? It's pretty popular nowadays. Yeah, yeah. Um, so with, with uh, sort of verbal prayer, spoken prayer, um, the emphasis there can be on discursive thinking. Mm -hmm. By discursive thinking, I mean, I have one idea, I go to the next idea, um, one thing leads to another, I have images in my mind, right? Um, and that is helpful and good and, and necessary, but it's not necessarily um, what we mean when we mean contemplation or contemplative practice, which focuses on a non-discursive awareness or like an immediate, a sense of immediate presence, mm -hmm. if, if that makes sense. Um, sitting meditation as well, uh, is, it, it is popular and it, and that's a good thing. I think in general, um, I think for me, the difference between, um, sitting meditation and, and contemplative prayer, if you want to call it that the difference would be in intent. What's the intent? Um, and anything can be consecrated as prayer with the right intent. Um, so 
practically speaking or technically speaking in terms of of how the technique is executed there might be very little difference between um uh sitting meditation or contemplative prayer the difference would just be i think the way it's framed in terms of of uh the rest of the worldview and practice surrounding it if that makes sense for sure you added uh, an interesting note to our notes which is uh, one of your teachers refers to contemplative prayer a prayer simply as practice yeah who mm -hmm. is the teacher and what do they mean by that and, and why do you find that phrase helpful yeah so the the teacher in question there is is uh, father martin laird and he's written a lot of great books on contemplative practice and and meditation and the intersection of of sort of silence with spiritual practice um uh particularly i'd recommend into the silent land for anybody listening it's a great book very practical and also very deep um and he he refers to he refers to um any sort of disciplined um attempt to put one to make oneself receptive to contemplation if we want to speak I guess, uh, uh, technically there, any, any sort of disciplined attempt like that as practice. Right. And so I think what's nice about calling it practice is, um, that avoids putting it all in one box, putting it out, saying you have to sit this way. You have to do this certain type of thing. Um, he, he covers, for example, lots of different styles of, of silent prayer, um, lots of different postures, lots of different um, ways of, for example, counting your breaths on a, on a prayer rope or a rosary or um, kneeling, walking, sitting, you know. So I think practice is nice because it refers to any um, sort of disciplined attempt to uh, cultivate contemplative awareness. Mm. Yeah. Um, what are some of the, the main techniques of Christian contemplation? Yeah, so uh, the first one I would think of would be um, reading scripture. So um, I'm sure you've heard of uh, Lectio Divina as a as a style of reading. Um, you know, there are different levels of of dwelling with the text in in Lectio Divina. Um, there are there there's sort of the the reading of the text itself right um and then there's sort of it chewing on the meaning and then and then eventually it ends up in silence right um so i, I know thomas keating one of the um authors and and teachers that i uh, appreciate um he he referred to um lectio divina as a really important practice uh, which is interesting because I, as i said before discursive <laughs> discursive thought discursive uh meditation um is is not exactly at odds with contemplation but it, it it's sort of it, it's just interesting the way the discursive and non-discursive awareness work together i guess and and lectio divina is an interesting case of that um i think also paying attention to the breath um using the prayer word as as uh, thomas keating would say and a lot of other uh, spiritual teachers would say um, to sort of focus your attention, um, practicing detachment, practicing um, the ability to let things go, right? Um, praying the rosary would be another one for a lot of Christians and Catholics um, in particular. And um, centering prayer is a pretty well-known, more mainstream-ish um, I guess uh, uh, way of of practicing contemplative prayer. It's it's gotten into the churches a little bit. Yeah. Before I, I barrel on with our our question sheet, uh, I just need to stop for a breather and ask. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah, Bishop Laney, do you the nuts off the show though? Just stop <laughs> stop, stop my eternal voice and my mouth from moving. <laughs> Bishop Laney, uh, do you have anything to add? Ask anything percolating there in in the mind stream with those discursive thoughts? I have found working and, and understanding uh, the breath, paying attention to the breath to be mm -hmm. very important. Um, I have my own reasons for why I found that to be useful in my own practice, but I'm curious if you'd like to expound a little bit more 
why is breath uh, such an important thing and why does it come up often, not just in, 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 in the tradition that you're speaking of, but in many other traditions as mm -hmm. well. I think, I think part of it um, is that we're always doing it, <laughs> whether we, whether we, whether we're conscious of it or not. Uh, and to become conscious of the breath is to take the, is to bring that which is often unconscious or which is un often not sort of um, explicit in our experience and to make it explicit, to make it intentional, to make it conscious in some way. Um, another thing, uh, I'm trying to remember who it was um, quoted in, in Marty Laird's book, but talk, he talks about, uh, it was an old desert monk, um, pretty much a 50, 50 shot. If I'm thinking of somebody that said something, it was an old desert monk, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, talked about, um, taking the the prayer word in this case the name of Jesus and uniting it to the breath right and sort of mm -hmm. that enables you in some way to become that word and that and you become a prayer in some way and this you know sounds very sort of esoteric and 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 uh, and maybe mystical in the sense of of um, unclear uh, but I think after a little practice and after a little experience, you start to get what that means, right? You start mm -hmm. to understand um, sort of taking all of your being, right? And it can be the breath is a, is a nice sort of um, part of us, I guess. And also, you know, the Hebrew ruach or pneuma in the Greek, right? The spirit, right. the life force in some way, the, 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 the sort of vital part of ourselves that animates us. Right, taking that and uh, channeling it with some sort of intention, right? And prayer is about uh, intentionality, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we did touch on this just slightly, but is it meditation? And if it's not, like, where does it differ from meditation? Yeah. Um, is it meditation? Uh, it has a lot in common with meditation. If we're talking about uh, contemplation or contemplative prayer, if you want to put it that way. Um, it has a lot of in common with meditation. Actually, some like if you really just did a side by side look at, at sort of your basic mindfulness techniques um, uh, on the one hand, and then something like um, Thomas Keating's method on the other hand, um, it's almost it, it, it's it's strikingly similar, right? Uh, insofar as it's a technique. I think sure we could call it meditation. Um, I think the difference would be that contemplative prayer um, is prayer because of the intention behind it, right? So I think, for example, you could practice mindfulness and it could be a prayer if you intend it as such, right? At the same time, um, you know, a lot of um, uh, some, at least some Buddhists that I know, um, would, wouldn't say what they're doing is prayer, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think that we need to have the freedom to be able to distinguish between those two practices, right? Uh, there's always a danger, especially um, with Christianity and it's sort of like colonial history of wanting to say, oh no, you're doing prayer, actually, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like, no, actually what you're doing is meditation, it's different. Yeah, what you're doing is like a sort of... Um, uh, insight practice, it's different and it's described in these certain ways, right? It has certain sort of technical similarities with how silent prayer has been practiced over the centuries, sure. Um, but I think in our sort of setting where mindfulness has become really mainstream um, and a lot of people sort of know, okay, well, when you're getting, <clears throat> when you're getting distracted, you sort of focus on your breath and, you know, it's, it's kind of in, in um, it's sort of in the culture. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's an easier sell, I guess, <laughs> to, to make the jump from that sort of, um, more popular mindfulness to, uh, to Christian contemplation, at least when I'm teaching it to a group, yeah. I sort of, the first thing I ask is who's practiced mindfulness, right? Cause that's an easy touchstone, right? The techniques are very similar. And then I go on to say, okay, well, it's, it, it is um, technically a very similar practice. And if you've had practice with mindfulness, that'll help you with this practice. Um, but we're coming from 
a sort of different um, metaphysics, right? We're coming from a different um, set of sort of cosmic suppositions, and that and that's okay. Like we want we want there we want to respect the difference between um, both different practices and also these sort of um, uh, cosmologies and histories and cultures and worldviews that gave rise to them. Um, well, th that leads quite well into the, the next question. So there does seem to be a, a, a fad. Uh, maybe it's not a fad. Hopefully it's not a fad. But as you mentioned, mindfulness is very mainstream. Uh, plenty of people are practicing it. There's lots of outlets to do it. Mm -hmm. It does seem to be that Christian contemplation is growing in popularity, and I'm hearing more about it. I'm finding more groups offering it. I'm meeting more people who are practitioners. Is, is this gain in popularity to compete with meditation or an answer for, for the presence fad for meditation? Um, so I don't think they're in competition. Um, I think part of it might be that the sort of widespread um, familiarity with meditation makes, makes intelligible Christian contemplation for a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, parishioners that wouldn't otherwise understand sort of um, the technical aspects very easily, right? So I think uh, there is, I wouldn't say there's a competition. Um, but I, I, I do also think that in some sense, when some sort of um, practice or um, belief gains popularity, it can be a, a good um, occasion for you to be able to see it more clearly in your own tradition, I think. Mm. Um, so, so it's not that, you know, mindfulness, you know, is this sort of like Eastern thing that we never had in the West or in sort of Christianity or in, in, in these sort of traditions that, that, um, uh, typically at least my uh, students are more familiar with, there have been elements all along that become more intelligible when you actually encounter similar um, similar streams in, in, in uh, other sort of strands of thought, if that makes sense. Yeah, 100% does. So uh, the Christian meditation of John Main and centering prayer and uh, Ignatian spirituality, those are sort of three, three big streams of Christian contemplation. And they're all founded by Catholics and seem to me have a very, you know, largish Catholic uh, following. And then the Jesus prayer, which you mentioned, the hesychasm, it's associated with the Eastern church. Is, is Christian contemplation also a Protestant thing? Uh, and is it making any inroads in Protestant communities? Yeah, I mean... I, um, so I attended a, a centering prayer retreat with a, with an organization called contemplative, uh, contemplative outreach, um, last year, it feels like a decade ago. <laughs> uh, and I, I attended it at an Episcopal retreat center. Um, and most of the, uh, sort of events or, um, other like sort of, people I know involved in um, contemplative stuff are either Episcopalians or Catholics, mostly, um, if they're Christian at all. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, I also, <laughs> to answer your question, though, about, about is it becoming mainstream in Protestantism, it's just a little anecdote. I remember growing up, um, I grew up in a, in a more uh, evangelical setting, let's say. And, uh, I remember <laughs> being told that if you practice, um, if you practice meditation and you, you know, you do these mudras or whatever, and you try to empty your mind that like, it'll make you vulnerable to being possessed by demons. Right. Yeah. Um, which is, which is yeah. like already a hilarious misunderstanding, misunderstanding of what, uh, <laughs> what, sort of a lot of meditation techniques even are, but, but there's sort of a fear uh, of that, um, which, you know, I guess we could speculate as to why. Um, this is a tangent, but this also, I mean, just, just speaking on that reminds me too of the trouble that someone like Teresa of Avila would have gotten yeah. in 
or John of the Cross would have gotten in more so Teresa because of the sort of misogyny of the church. But um, <clears throat> during the counter reformation in this is, this is okay. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking out loud. I'm sort of thinking out loud here, but this is an interesting connection in the counter reformation. So the, the, the Protestants sort of reform and the Catholics double down. We are not Protestant. You're not doing Protestant things. Um, a lot of these, um, uh, mystics were under a lot of scrutiny, right? Because so for Teresa, for example, she would say, you know, you have spoken prayer. So you say the, our father, you go to liturgy, whatever you speak it out loud <clears throat> and that's great, but that's not, <laughs> that's not the end of it. There's also mental prayer where, where you actually sort of chew over the meaning of the words in your mind. And then there's silent prayer or, or the prayer of quiet, um, where you sort of leave even words behind. And I think, you know, there's a lot of that could be written on this and has been written on this. Um, I think a lot of the issue with that is once you start leaving words behind, once you start leaving, um, uh, once you start leaving sort of prescribed prayers behind, the institution no longer has authority over your prayer life, right? Yeah. yeah. And that can get scary for, or or at least make sort of people in, in power kind of nervous. So, um, Thankfully, Teresa avoided, um, you know, the worst that could have happened. But um, I think I think in a lot of ways, this kind of spirituality can be very uh, empowering because uh, it delivers a sort of individual experience. Right. That's not uh, that's that's not simply prescribed. Right. That's not simply written, written ahead of time. Right. As great as those things can be. Yeah. Oh, exactly. And and I completely agree with you, too, about both the power of it and also the fear uh, that, that surrounds it, perhaps by by figures of, of authority. Mm -hmm. um, okay, let's see if I can say his name right. It's uh, who was a, a Vigris? Almost. You almost got it. It's a Vagris. Vagris. Um, yeah, Evagrius. So I've done a little writing on Evagrius, um, not much. So I don't want to pretend like I'm an expert, um, but I found him very useful for uh, thinking about um, spirituality and, and practice. Um, and if you want to find that, it's at the sideview.co. Um, a good friend of mine, um, Adam Robert, runs that. It's a great website on practice, um, spirituality, uh, science. Um, architecture a lot about architecture it's a very interesting sort of intersection of of disciplines um but evagrius was a um excuse me was a desert monk in the fourth century and he um sort of went into the desert in order to imitate an earlier saint um anthony uh whom i'm sure you're familiar with uh great Salvador Dali painting of, of uh, Anthony's temptation in the desert. Um, and he famously went out to the desert to battle demons, right? Um, and Evagrius wrote a lot of different texts on prayer and contemplation, and it's based in his reading of scripture, his reading of theology, his own thinking, things like that. But it's also, I, I think, really interestingly based on his personal experience and the experience of, of sort of the the monks in his community so they would gather around on saturday nights and talk about sort of their their struggles in their practice throughout the week and they would sort of bat around possible solutions back and forth and things like that so it's almost kind of like an empirical <laughs> an empirical sort of endeavor right um sort of uh, uh trying to map out like what are these common problems in 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 prayer and how can we sort of avoid them or or, or overcome them in some way uh, <clears throat> what, what could uh modern christians and spiritual practitioners uh learn from him about christian contemplation yeah so i think one thing that happens a lot in um spirituality if you're not careful or even sometimes if you are careful um are you familiar with the term spiritual bypassing oh we yeah. sure are actually yeah okay <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well there you go um this i this this sort of sort of 
going straight for this this sort of bliss without working out your your stuff um working out your your issues right and using spirituality or using sort of um these techniques to circumvent um working through uh real problems right real issues real tendencies um and so there are two sides to the coin in silent prayer um stillness which is kind of what we all want right that's why we all go go to it we we, we just want some peace we want to be able to let go we want to be able to um in some way sort of transcend the the sort of um uh, uh sort of flux and flow that kind of uh causes us some, some pain and consternation and everything else um but the other side of the coin is vigilance which you know is watchfulness, right? And Evagrius's um, recommendations about prayer are very much, at least in the Practicos, which is the sort of prayer manual I'm referencing here, um, are very focused on vigilance, very focused on tracking your interior states, like uh, making sure that you are aware of where thoughts are coming from, which thoughts are leading to other thoughts, what is your um, emotional or bodily reaction to them like why are you getting upset right why are you um getting distracted and and it's not a failure if you get upset or distracted it's an opportunity right to first of all let it go what say okay i've noticed i let it go and also to take note of what it is that sort of led to that and to be able to sort of modify uh your thought patterns accordingly right which you know, sounds almost exactly like a lot of textbook CBT stuff, right? But this is part of prayer for Evagrius. P prayer does have a therapeutic aspect. It's not just, it's not, it's not just therapy in the sense of of a sort of, <clears throat> in the sense of a sort of um, reductionism. It's not reduced to just therapy, right? If I go to CBT, that doesn't mean that I that I don't need to pray. Um, but what's interesting there is, is there's a therapeutic process that is involved in prayer for mm -hmm. someone like Evagrius, right? Because prayer is not just about saying the right things. In fact, Evagrius says prayer is, is setting aside all thoughts, actually. It's not just about saying the right things or reciting the right words. It's, it's actually about the process of becoming whole, right? The process of becoming an integrated uh, whole and in some way, uh, finding peace and stillness in God as a whole person, right? If it involves the whole person, uh, it's going to have uh, a therapeutic aspect insofar as therapy is helping us become who we're supposed to be, right? We don't go to therapy because everything's okay. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, uh, of course, a lot of Christian contemplatives read the, the desert monks, you know, the sayings of the desert monks, go back to them. That They write a lot about demons, right? I mean, you already said, if Agrius went out to the desert to fight demons, is, mm -hmm. is that helpful for, for modern people when they're building a contemplative practice? <laughs> depends on who it is, I think. Um, yeah, it depends on who it is. For I think for a lot of people, it could be, um, for a lot of people, it could probably be a real... Uh, stumbling block for a variety of reasons. On the one hand, um, you know, talk about demons could could inspire a lot of fear. Um, it could inspire a lot of um, uh, anxiety, right? Um, on the other hand, um, it could um, be unhelpful language because because uh, we don't believe in that anymore, right? I'm speaking as someone who doesn't believe that anymore, right? We don't, we don't, why do we need angels? Why do we need demons, right? Why do we need the supernatural, right? So for me, it would be on a case-by-case -case basis. I find it helpful um, because in a lot of ways, Evagrius is able, so so for him, the, the Greek term that he uses is logismoi, which means thought, or afflicting thought, particularly a thought with a certain kind of persuasive power, right? <clears throat> and he and he names um, he names the thoughts. He names the the different type kinds of thoughts. Um, you know, gluttony, lust, the whole, the all of the seven deadly sins. That's that's rooted in Evagrius, anger, 
um, acedia, which is the interesting one, I think for our time, especially, um, right. A lot of these, um, different thoughts, he, he sort of, he sort of personifies them. And I think personally, I think he, he believes in demonic entities, right. Um, uh, it's part of the cosmology. Um, but at the very least he personifies different thought patterns and tendencies as, um, as certain demons that are under certain, um, uh, rulerships, certain, uh, demonic powers, uh, uh, pave the way for others. Right. Um, and he, and he, he expounds all this by kind of just paying attention to the interior life, right. Paying attention to, okay, I'm, uh, so one example is, is, uh, he thinks that, uh, the well-fed body is very horny, right? <laughs> so, so the, 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 um, so if you feast on a lot of meat, according to, um, according to this sort of paradigm at the time, um, you're sort of more prone to, uh, um, uh, sexual desires, right? Um, and we can talk about how that may or may not even be a helpful way to think about sexuality or food now. Right. Um, but just as an example, he sort of thinks that gluttony as a, as a demonic force sort of teams up with fornication, right? They're, they're kind of working together and gluttony lays the, the, uh, groundwork for fornication to sort of do its work. Right. So he's sort of thinking about like literally they're, they're kind of martial tactics, uh, Mm -hmm. And and I think that's a I think that's a neat way to uh, thematize what's going on in your interior life. Um, I have I have reservations about wholeheartedly accepting right um, an Evagrian uh, uh, notion of of uh, ethics or sexuality or whatever. Um, but you know, there's some good stuff there too that I think is more foundational. Yeah. Just an observation for for anybody who hasn't done a lot of contemplative practice or never gone on a meditation retreat. You may read a lot of this old literature and be like, why are these guys so obsessed with sex? But if you Mm -hmm. go and do a long retreat, you will discover just how powerful the Eros drive is. And it's much stronger (laughs) than you ever thought. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not what you're there to think about. And it's what you will be thinking about. (laughs) Well, and what's so interesting about it. So I I also do a lot of work in psychoanalysis, like Freudian post freudian kind of theory um and i and i thematize it as as cathexis and a cathexis is um a sort of the force of attraction where you know the sort of the sort of freudian notion of sexuality is 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 much broader than just sort of genital sexuality um and so you you sort of cathect on objects you you have objects that um you invest with a certain kind of of desire a certain kind of um importance in your psychic life that registers on the body right um so i'm thinking of um the great dinner that my wife is cooking me right now and i'm very hungry and and in some way the more i'm talking about it the more that i'm sort of psychically connecting onto that object and now i just want to throw my headphones down and go <laughs> go eat some dinner right um but my point is that a cathexis isn't just a thought in the sense of a neutral thought right uh, a cathexis is a thought that has its own kind of um, has its own kind of force, mm-hmm. right? And that moves you, right? And so, passion—the idea of a passion—is um, that you su- is that you are moved, right? Um, and the idea of um, equanimity is that you're not moved; you're unmoved, right? Which isn't to say, which isn't to say that you you don't tap into love or joy or peace or patience, et cetera. But it's, but it's fundamentally a different space from being sort of absorbed in the passions, which are very sort of violent and, and, and cause a lot of movement. Right. And so like you're saying, when you're on a retreat um, and you, and you notice how powerful the arrows drive is, it's not just that you, that you notice it, but that you're actively suffering the whole time that it happens. Mm. Right. In the sense of, um, in the sense of, 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 you know, whether it's just you're being a hornball 
or whether you're sort of like just wishing that you could have some meat, right? <laughs> or or just wishing that you could be outside or anywhere else besides sitting on this cushion right now, right? And and it's and it's something that causes you inner turmoil, right? Um, and and I think that is different than just having conceptual thoughts, right? This is the kind of impassioned thought that Evagrius was paying attention to and that I think comes up a lot in, in retreat settings. But you do, I think, to your point, I, you do need some sort of prolonged period of silence for that to surface really clearly, I think, in a lot of cases. Because when I'm, when I'm feeling, um, when I'm feeling, uh, um, when I'm feeling sort of, uh, um, you know, angry or, or, uh, disturbed or agitated by something, I can just pull out my phone or be distracted by literally anything, um, or flip on the TV or whatever, um, or, or do something good and productive, right? I can do any of those things. Um, but the ability to divert your attention away from those drives, uh, actually obscures them, you know? And so the, the sort of intentional practice of silence and of prolonged, um, sort of meditation, contemplation, et cetera, um, allows them to speak w much more clearly and allows you to be much more vigilant about, okay, what's really going on in my interior life, you know, and you can't run away from it when you're on the cushion. You know, something that, that this, this struck me is um, I, I've heard about this sort of thing, not necessarily in the context of meditation, but in the context of relationships, particularly in marital relationships, um, two people who uh, you feel people who've been married and they the TV is constantly on. Or this is the way it used to be before everybody had the internet, but they mm -hmm. had always had the TV on because that meant they didn't have to talk to each other. Mm. And, mm -hmm. and um, they, so they could ignore if, whether they were having problems or no problems, but they, they could ignore all that because the TV was doing the talking mm. and it was providing, they were listening to the TV and when, you know, the electricity went out or so the TV went on the fritz or something like that. Ah! Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, they're, they're, they were forced to uh, confront the fact maybe they have nothing to say to each other. Maybe mm -hmm. they don't want mm -hmm. to pay attention to each other. Or maybe, hey, we do kind of like each other and let's pay more attention. But th th that right. kind of that kind of perpetual distraction that mm -hmm. did the talking, that did the listening, that, that, that provided the conversation, when that's no longer there, um, you either have a choice. You can either flee from the situation or you can confront it. Mm, um, and it's mm -hmm. just happening when you have two people, of course, you've got two people there who can work on each other, but that, that was what came right. to mind when you were talking about, uh, this process of contemplation and, and being in retreat and, um, mm -hmm. what it can force us to confront rather than to back away from. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, I think that's a great, uh, a great example. Um, and it, you know, it does occur in our interpersonal relationships as well as in yeah. ourselves. Right. Yeah. A lot of times, a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times our sort of destructive interpersonal behavior is, is, uh, is a consequence of us not working through our stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, going back a little bit. Oh, it's interesting that, that you're, you're interested in, in desire and the Freud and post-Freudian views on it. Cause someday I dream of doing a Lacan and Valentinus episode. So oh, you can be on be the fun. panel for that. Yeah. Um, because the Valentinian version of the Gnostic myth, right? Sophia falls because of desire. Um, mm. But uh, uh, and it's a great psychological metaphor. Anyways, that's another show talking about another, another <laughs> show, Jacob, which is, sure, sure. uh, I've been wanting to do uh, an episode on acedia sometimes. So you mentioned it in passing, yeah. but uh, most of our listeners and watchers aren't going to know what that is. Could you just tell us what acedia is? Sure. And I'm, I, uh, this will be off the cuff. I didn't prep anything for it. Okay. Um, but it's uh, sort of known as the noonday demon uh, is kind of the, um, I guess, uh, name that it's gotten. Um, acedia trying to remember i don't know the seven deadly sins the official list of the seven seven deadly sins off the top of my head but i don't think this is one 
Because no. I think I think Evagrius actually had eight, and I think they may have cut Acedia. Yeah, I think uh, they rolled sure. it as a sloth, even though and there you go. sloth, yeah. 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 So that I think sloth would be the closest uh, uh, approximation, but it's uh it's not quite the same. Um Acedia is somewhere in between lethargy and despair, <laughs> right? Or some sort of combination between the two. Um, I think depression, the experience of depression is very similar. Um, indifference. Indifference, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting um, because indifference is a way that a lot of people sort of misunderstand apatheia, which is the sort of good thing that you're supposed to be going after. Um, but yeah, I think indifference might be a nice way to put it. Yeah, acedia, yeah. indifference, like sort of losing interest, not even losing interest, losing the sort of energy that you need and the enthusiasm that you need to uh go about your day, appreciate life, uh, appreciate the work that you've been given to do. Um, yeah. And it's, 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 it's interesting because, uh, you know, with rates of depression, you know, always getting higher. Um, I don't have any statistics to back that up right off the, <laughs> right off my, uh, right off the cuff, but that's just my sense. Um, yes. with, uh, I think, I think acedia is something that more and more people are, are, sort of understanding uh unfortunately right mm -hmm. from a from a from a real sort of um first person kind of view are we allowed to curse on this show yeah oh, go for fuck it yes. okay okay all right okay <laughs> just making sure i've been i've been censoring myself up until now um so i think too david graber the economist had a had a book that i haven't read but i want to called bullshit jobs which is right. just about sort of the production of meaningless labor to fill sort of these structures that 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 need meaningless labor demoralizing labor even um and i think the more and more that we're sort of given labor that is meaningless <laughs> the more that you know our our governments sort of um make it more and more clear that they don't care about um sort of uh our well-being right um the the we i could go on about the structures that sort of are causing this or or at least setting the conditions for this kind of thing um but you know there's a real sense of despondency um of people just checking out right and this is kind of this is kind of um i mean it's it's in a much different context but this is kind of what evagoras was getting at with acedia where you kind of just wish you had never made the decision to come here right wish that you had never made the decision to um to pursue a monastic life you uh you wish that it was just like a few hours later and then you could have something to eat or like a few hours later and you could go to bed right um just really checking out i think yeah, yeah. Um, I have read uh, BS Jobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's quite excellent. I I highly recommend it. So anybody out there uh, looking for for an excellent book, uh, that's a good one. And I I hope that you are not trapped in one of those BS Jobs, even though most of us are. Um, okay, Gnosticism. It's good actually, or at least stuff that's labeled and lumped in with Gnosticism. I'll put out the uh, the air quotes. Sure, uh, sure. What did it? What did Avigrius have to say? I'm never going to say the name right. What did he have to say about the body that may resonate with Gnostics? Yeah. So first of all, I want to say I'm not an expert on Gnosticism at all uh, in its in its um, in its uh, real forms and it's like actually positive forms. Um, I the way that um, Gnosticism gets thrown around, especially in mainstream Christianity. So with somebody like N.T. Wright, for example. Or like N.T. Wrong. Huh? High five. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Very good. Very good. Yeah, no, that's great. I I just think he he takes anything that, well, not he not he alone. There, there's kind of this tendency to take anything that um, is seen as like denigrating the body, mm -hmm. quote unquote, and to say, oh, that's Gnostic because Gnostics hate your body, right? Gnostics hate matter. Uh, the demiurge trapped us here, whatever. Um, and that's sort of opposed to, on the other hand, the incarnational view, right? The orthodox incarnational view where um, that affirms life and affirms matter and affirms the body and, and whatever. So so uh, for me, when I'm sort of, I, I joke on Twitter a lot about being a Gnostic, 
when I say that I I'm coming from that context. Um, so I would be absolutely, uh, um, uh, beyond my depth to get into like actual historical Gnosticism with, with y'all. Um, even though I think I'd have a lot of fun. Um, but okay. I'm losing my train of thought. Right. So when I, when we say Gnosticism, it's good actually. Um, I think a lot of times there's a sort of, like I said, the sort of mainstream, uh, reaction to Gnosticism and it's really a Gnosticism that has been made up right? Um, is to want to affirm the body, um, be really, um, yeah, just body positive, whatever, which that has different connotations. Um, which I think to, to like an extent is fine. But, um, when you build your entire sort of theological paradigm off of that reaction, that's not so good. Um, and I think what Evagrius captures, I think is a real ambivalence in materiality. Right? So it's not just that the world is bad or the world is good. The world is complicated, <laughs> right? Uh, matter is complicated. Uh, bodies are complicated, right? Um, you know, bodies hurt sometimes. Bodies get sick sometimes. Bodies die, right? Uh, it's not just a good thing. <laughs> and uh, I think that's a really uh, important insight that uh, that's you know, I've been accused of accused, uh, by Orthodox, uh, people of being Gnostic because I don't think the body's just plainly good, you know? Um, and I think that, um, Evagrius is really helpful with this and, and sort of the originist kind of area in general too. Um, origin, another, um, uh, theologian of the early church in Alexandria. Um, they sort of had this, uh, mythology where in the beginning there was this like intellectual creation or sort of creation of the, of noose is the Greek word. Um, and we were all perfectly happy little orbs contemplating God. And then, um, uh, you can see, you know, Bob Ross painting a happy little orb over here. Um, and then because of desire or boredom or fill in the blank, right it precipitated this fall and, you know, we were, I guess, really hot when we were orbs and then we start to cool down and then we be, and then we condense into bodies. And so then instead of just being a mind, you have a mind and a soul and a body. Right. And so this anthropology gives you a kind of practice that's focused on detaching from the body and the soul to rest in the mind. Detachment doesn't mean just getting rid of it or, or canceling it out. Right, detachment means not not having the seed of your awareness dominated by something, right? Um, not having the seed of your awareness situated in just the body, but actually developing a kind of um, non-judgmental attention that's able to transcend the body in some way, right? To say to say, for example, yes, I am thirsty, and I can acknowledge that I'm thirsty, right? Uh, and and now I can do something about it rationally. Right. Or yes, I am angry. Acknowledge that I am angry and do something about it rationally. Right. As opposed to just allowing these sort of um, these energetic uh, flows sort of control where you go and, and, and sort of feel like you're run over by your own body and soul. And the soul in this context is your sort of interior life that is that is um, that suffers emotionally whereas your body suffers physically, right? Yeah. Does that answer your question? Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, okay, and, great. And unfortunately, we're starting to get to, to the wrap-up. We're not quite okay. there, but we're almost, the, the end is coming. Uh, but before we reach that point, uh, Bishop, uh, anything to, to add, ask, whatever? I'm interested in that, you know, the idea of the, the Orthodox, well, the body's entirely good, because, of course, when you look at what some of the things that the desert fathers and mothers did to themselves, yeah. Um, we're left with some real questions of how, how really just how good they thought their bodies were. Uh, many of them, uh, you know, uh, would not sleep or they would, they would do things that would actually physically harm themselves. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. by any standard, 
uh, of, of medical practice, physiology, biology, biochemistry. They were doing things that were, were f- making them ill, probably shortening their life, probably mm-hmm. disabling them. Yeah, you shouldn't do that stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I mean, you, you know, this is a major part of uh, the Christian tradition, particularly the Eastern mm-hmm. tradition, but certainly people from the West have taken a lot from the, the desert fathers and mothers. And yet we also have this notion here that these people would talk about, you know, I remember hearing about it was one of the, the, the one of the anabas who was criticizing a young soldier uh, for sleeping uh, for a few hours, saying, you know, how dare you, a strong, healthy young man, pamper your flesh like that while he was sleeping. We know that sleep is actually kind of important. You deprive somebody of it, you're violating the Geneva Convention. Um, mm. Yeah, it, it's like the, 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 there are certain issues that are not under dispute uh, anymore. And yet mm. this is also part of that tradition. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that... Um... I think that there's a, you have to, I I do think that some practice in, in the sort of tradition that I'm talking about um, did, and some practitioners did slip into denigration, hatred of the body. I think that happens. I think that's a risk in, in, um, in this particular stream. Right. I think that, um, there's a lot more awareness about Mm -hmm. that now. Um, And also just better science (laughs) and, and um, uh, hopefully, well, yeah, I think there's, there's better science now, which is a big, which is a big deal. Um, I do think that it's possible to, well, I know that it's possible. I know it happens all the time to hate your own body. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that is a, um, I think that's an issue, right? I, I think that's a, that's an issue that, you know, we need to uh, work, work through. That's something that causes us suffering, right? Um, I think that with, I think the most charitable read of someone like Evagrius would be that you engage in ascetic practices and there's sort of a spectrum of intensity and, you know, somewhere there's a line that should not be crossed, right? Um, you engage in ascetic practices in order to um, detach your sort of uh, seat of awareness from just your body, like I said earlier. Um, I think fasting, for example, is is one of those things that can can be beneficial. Sure. Right? Sure. Fa- yeah, fasting can that. be beneficial, right? Um or you can go too long. Yeah. Right? And the question is why are you going so long? Why are you why are you um <clears throat> being so extreme about it, right? Um and I think, you know, that's something that you can only answer on a case-by-case basis, I think, which is why it's good, I think, to have a trusted um, spiritual director of some kind to be able to, you know, have a second set of eyes on on your practices to, to, to know that you are um, sort of in good company, I guess. Um, and I think, you know, another big part of um, desert monasticism is a lot of them were very solitary or were sort of mm-hmm. not necessarily checking in the community all the time, which I think is another big, really important aspect of it. I think typically if you get, if you're in a community or at least with a few other people that you can check in with, I think typically these things, at least now will correct themselves, but you know, there's always that, that, um, that risk. It's a risk. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just, I, I just think it's interesting. I know that many modern communities, even those that are relatively austere, like Discal's Carmelites or the Poor Clares, mm-hmm. um, even in those communities, uh, you know, you have a direct, you, you have a confessor, you have a spiritual director, you mm-hmm. have a superior, and you're not simply not permitted to abuse yourself. Which right. is its own form of spiritual bypassing. Right. Um, yeah. You know that. Yes, if you're sick. No, you are not going to be having on your, you're not going to be on your Lenten fast. You're going to get 
extra right. eggs and dairy in your diet and you're going to be in bed. You're not waking up in the middle of the night to right. saying that the midnight office. So um, I was just, it, it just, I think it's an interesting thing. We were talking about the issue of, mm-hmm. we were spo- you know, it, it, according to orthodoxy, the body is all good. Um, and there mm-hmm. is this tradition uh, among some uh, mm-hmm. of actually actively abusing the body to yeah. the point of damaging it. So I just thought it was an interesting yeah. question. And I think, I think I should, I should, uh, I should clarify that when I'm saying the sort of orthodox versus Gnostic kind mm-hmm. of divide here, it's largely rhetorical, right? Mm-hmm. So like somebody like N.T. right or N.T. wrong, right? You know, mm-hmm. So good. I love that. I'm going to start using that now. Um, somebody like right now, by the way. Right? Yeah. <laughs> somebody like N.T. right, for example, will use that sort of um, uh, rhetorical um, kind of disjunction to say, all right, well, you have a Gnostic view over here. That's That's heresy, right? That's bad orthodoxy is good over here. The orthodoxy is the incarnational view, right? When actually, and I think this is to your point, actually, if you look at the tradition, it's very complicated, right? People that you would consider orthodox or or incarnational or whatever have very complicated views of the body that you would call Gnostic and they wouldn't identify as such, you know? Um, so I don't know. It's it's a it's a interesting little word game that's being played, and hopefully it is it is uh, on its way out soon. <laughs> uh, Jacob, if someone wanted to start a regular Christian contemplation practice, what advice do you have to start them on the path? Sure. So the sort of if you're doing contemplative practice, so specifically, I would recommend checking out Centering Prayer. Um, Thomas Keating is a good resource, uh, K-E-A-T-I-N-G. Um, and he lays out the steps of Christian contemplation or sorry, centering prayer, which are sort of descent comfortably, um, to block off a time of about 20 minutes, um, to sit in silence. And when you notice yourself getting distracted to repeat a prayer word that you kind of select for yourself. Um, and once the 20 minutes are up it's up and you do that 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon. So after lunch or so, um, now I, I, a lot of times have a hard time getting that second sit in. So I would recommend if you're, if you're just starting out, um, try five minutes, check out the insight timer app. That's a great little app for, um, meditation. And, uh, yeah, I would say, Read um, Thomas Keating's, uh, I think it's Open Heart, Open Mind, and uh, Marty Laird's Into the Silent Land are great places to start. But yeah, I just say start blocking off a time uh, to be intentionally silent and see where that takes you. Super cool. Well, that sounds like the the perfect place to wrap up. Uh, Jacob, thanks so much for joining us. It, it was really awesome. And before we go, uh, one last commercial, which is, uh, okay, the, where can people find you online, Jacob? Oh, sure. Yeah. So uh, you can find me at Twitter at The Givenist. Um, uh, I run a podcast also called PTR. You can find uh, PTR, Philosophy, Theology, and Religion, anywhere uh, podcasts are distributed. And you can check it out on Patreon at patreon.com slash PTR podcast. We're currently running a monthly book club for our listeners on Valentin Tomberg's Meditations on the Tarot, if you want to oh. get in on that. I, yeah. I, I feel like that's something that our audience would definitely, <laughs> definitely. Uh, be. Yes. And I say this every show, but, you know, we, we talk to the to guests, awesome guests like you. And, of course, a thousand ideas arrive in our heads of future shows we have to book. And somehow we've never done one on on that <laughs> book. So um, we, we've it's really got to really got to tackle that. Um, my commercial is for mileendmeditation.substack.com. Uh, talking about meditation and contemplation, I have some training and experience teaching uh, secular mindfulness. I've moved it online because we can't meet in person here in Montreal. So you can come and join us for free. Uh, whether you're an experienced meditator or you uh, are new, uh, it is, it's, it's about an hour sit, 45 minutes sit. I give instruction. We've got a good crowd. It's Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. 
PM uh, uh, done over uh, done online. We're probably going to keep it online forever because we have some people who have moved away. We have people all around the country doing it now. So even when we can do it in person again, I'll probably set up the webcam. So check that out. I'm also doing uh, some of my parish activities, which often uh, translate to uh, about 45 minutes of mystical meditation. And then, uh, you know, me ranting. Uh, you should check that out. That is uh, holygrail.substack.com. That's every second Sunday evening. Uh, the Bishop Lady, do you have any plugs? Um, not at the moment. Uh, revamping my candle ministry page on, on Facebook. That'll probably be up soon. But until then, uh, sit tight, folks. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Well, this is uh, Deacon Jonathan Swords signing off. Thanks so much, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you.